We're returning to our series in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. Now the previous sermon, we looked at Hebrews 9, verse 1 to 14. But then more than one person said, I didn't quite get 11 to 14. I didn't quite follow. So I'm going to do 11 to 14, a completely new sermon this morning on that. And the theme for this morning's, or the title for this morning's message is New Testament Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you once again for the Lord's day, for the day that Christ rose from the dead, that Jesus Christ is alive, that we worship the living and the true God, that we worship the risen Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we worship the Holy Spirit, who is the true and living God, from eternity to eternity, the eternal Spirit of the living God. And we pray that you would accept this sermon this morning as worship, that you would accept the obedience to the sermon as true worship. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, in the early church, there was a false teaching called Judaism. Judaism. And what the Judaists said is that Gentiles, people who are not Jews, they must become Jews before God will accept them. So yes, they must believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, but they need to be Jewish first, circumcised, Jewish dietary laws, and so on. Today there are modern Judaists called the Hebrew Roots Movement. It's not one particular congregation or church. These people, they infiltrate Christian churches. And the Hebrew Roots Movement, unfortunately, and I don't know why, but unfortunately many Christians, even evangelical Christians, it's as if they find a liking in this and they tend toward this the teachings of the Hebrew roots movements, like, like they want an Old Testament type of Christianity rather than the fuller New Testament Christianity. And the reason for this is they don't understand passages like Acts chapter 7, where Stephen made a clear distinction and drew a clear distinction between Old Testament believers or Old Testament Christianity, if I can call it that, and New Testament Christianity, or Judaism and New Testament Christianity. They don't understand passages like Acts 15, where it is made very clear that the Gentiles needn't become Jews before they can be saved, or in order to be saved. They don't understand the book of Galatians, where Paul does the same thing. They don't understand Colossians 2, 16 and 17 where it says we don't hold fast to the shadow of these Old Testament things anymore because we have the fullness in Christ. They don't understand passages like Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14, our text for today. They don't understand the rest of Hebrews. That's why they fall into this trap and follow this false teaching. So let's read our passage, Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then... Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's not of this creation, 
Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So let us first of all look at our worship. Number one, our worship, and that our meaning New Testament Christians, our worship in verse 11. One of the sermons that I preached in the past that that gets the almost, well, one of them, gets the most hits on the internet is a sermon called How Do Christians Worship? And I reckon it's a bunch of school kids Uh, every August or so, you see many hits on that sermon, every day, for a few weeks. And I think it's because it's part of the curriculum for kids at school, you have to see how different religions worship, and then they get to that sermon. And that's what I want to discuss here, again. How do Christians worship? So in verse 1 to 10, in the previous sermon, we saw... Oh, Old Testament believers, this is how they worshipped. There was a tent, a tabernacle. Uh, There were priests, and they brought sacrifices. And we explained all all about Old Testament worship. Now, in these verses, 11 to 14, what the writer to the Hebrews is showing us, he says, now we have a New Testament priest. We have a New Testament tabernacle or tent. We have New Testament sacrifices or a final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. We have New Testament worship, and it's so much better than the old. Even in chapter 10, verse 20, it speaks of a new and living way, a better way that we have now of worship. So why why in the world would these Hebrews, these first readers, why in the world would they want to return to Old Testament worship, to that which is second rate and not the best? And even today, why would it, why would Christians to to this very day want to return to Old Testament worship. Especially if Jesus predicted the end of Old Testament worship. And Jesus told us we must worship God in spirit and truth. This is the new way. This is the living way. Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 the temple is going to be destroyed. Old Testament worship will end. Finally, once for all, completely. And then, as I say in John 4, verse 23 and 24, we should worship in spirit and truth. How do we do this, and how should we do this? Well, I've already explained that, I already explained that in the previous sermon uh, on Hebrews 9, but I want to add something. So when it says, when Jesus said we should worship Him in truth, we should worship the Father in truth, then it means that we should worship God according to the New Testament commandments. Jesus said, Teach my disciples to obey everything I've commanded you. So that's what we call the regulative principle. What that means is we should worship God only according to what he commands us in the New Testament. Not what he commands us plus that which he doesn't forbid. That's like saying he is an architect, he gives the drawing to the builder or the contractor, 
Uh, and he says, Here's, here are the plans, build according to this. And then the contractor decides, I'm going to build according to everything that is commanded on this drawing, plus everything that is not forbidden. Well, that house is going to look very much different from the plans. Uh, it's not going to match the plans, because he's supposed to build only according to what is commanded, not commanded plus not forbidden. And so we should worship only according to what, what God has commanded in the New Testament for the New Testament church. And that's called then, as I said, the regulative principle. And what we do then is, is hear the commands. We sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, we read the Bible, we pray the Bible, and we see the Bible, or see the gospel, preach the gospel, read the gospel, pray the gospel and sing the gospel. So, in other words, uh, Colossians tells us the word of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then it speaks of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we're singing the word. Or it says, until I come, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So the reading of God's word, the reading of the gospel. And then in 2 Timothy he says, preach the word. So we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching God's word, the truth, bringing it out to God's people, and then praying God's word. Like in Acts chapter 4, O Lord, sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, and so on, and then they say, you who said by the Holy Spirit through your servant David, and then they quote Psalm 2. So we're praying scripture, we're praying God's truth, and then seeing the gospel, that he's seeing the death of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus when we break the bread and drink the wine. Seeing the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus when someone is baptized, when someone is immersed. So we don't need to be innovative. We don't need to think of new stuff we can do uh, or, or add elements to our worship to entertain people and to draw unbelievers to the church and and all kinds of gimmicks, or because we want this spiritual experience. No, if you do that, in the end you, you end with worship that is very foreign to the New Testament. So then you end with, with worship where you have priests, and, and you light candles, and you burn incense, and you've got holy water, and you bow before an image, a crucifix, and you kiss the feet of a statue, and you say rhymes in Latin, the language that... Most people don't understand. And then you end with worship where you start painting in the worship service. And you paint this picture and you say, I'm painting in the spirit. And, and you dance and you wear a leotard and you dance and you wave a flag on the stage. And you end with worship where you've got a little concert. And you've got skits. And you've got a rock concert with, with colored lights and with smoke. And you end with worship where you show movies to people instead of preaching the gospel and expounding and explaining the word of God. And you show these movies and saying, let's learn Christian lessons from these movies. And you've got an Oprah Winfrey type of, type of interview and just, just casual talk sitting on a sofa instead of preaching the word. And then you end with worship where people laugh in the spirit and they... they have convulsions in the Holy Spirit and fall in the Spirit, slain in the Spirit and all kinds of nonsense. Where if we worship in truth, just according to the commandments of the New Testament, well then you won't have that kind of worship. 
And then Jesus also told us to worship in spirit. So worship in spirit means to worship anywhere believers gather. Because God is spirit. He's not confined to a temple in Jerusalem or to a mountain in Samaria. Anywhere. So you don't have to go to Jerusalem to have Old Testament feasts like some people still want to do. You don't have to be baptized in the Jordan River. And our worship isn't confined to homes. Where people say, if it's not a house church, if you gather in a church building, that's, that's bad worship, that's sinful worship, that's a wrong kind of worship. You have to be in homes. No, we don't have to. And then the other side also, you don't have to be confined to a church building and say, oh, you have to be in this building. House churches aren't real churches. No. Anywhere believers gather. And then also worshipping in spirit means that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, moves your spirit to worship according to the truth of the Word. God moves you by the truth of His Word. And when the Word comes, the effect is that you are that you have sorrow for sin, or you love God, or you thank God for the death of His Son, for sending His Son. You worship God for who He is. You are in awe of who He is. You have a desire for heaven. There's a, an earnestness, a seriousness to consecrate yourself, to commit yourself to God, heart and soul. So that's what it means to worship in spirit. Your heart is moved. Your emotions are moved by the truth of the word of God. As the spirit plants it and places it in your heart. So now the question. How does your worship measure up? Do you seek to worship God in spirit but not in truth? Well, then your worship might be sincere, but it's going to end up as worship that is unacceptable. It's not acceptable to God. You may be sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. You're like Nadab and Abihu. And the Bible doesn't say they were sincere, but the point is that they brought unauthorized fire. God didn't command them to burn that incense. And they did, and God killed them. You'll be like Uzzah. Oh, they're all earnest and they're all serious and they're all upright. Saying, we're bringing the ark back to Israel and we're putting it on this new cart. But God had commanded them, that's not how I wish to be worshipped. The Levites should carry it. You may never transport my throne on an ox cart. And when the oxen stumbled and the ark tottered and it seemed it's going to fall and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark, God struck him dead. So we don't want worship where you're all sincere and we're all upright and we're all rejoicing, but we're rejoicing in the worship that pleases us, not the worship that pleases God. It's unacceptable to God. Or perhaps you're seeking to worship God in truth. So you want to worship God according to the New Testament commandments. But you, you do that, but you worship without spirit? Well, then your, your worship will be orthodox, it will be in line with God, God's word, but it's dead. It's cold. You're keeping all the rules, but your heart is not in it. Or perhaps you seek to worship God in spirit and in truth, but you're seeking to do it according to the Old Testament and not the New Testament. Well, then your worship is incomplete and it's shadowy. It's shadowy. You're back to the shadows. 
You're back to, let's say, the Passover lamb instead of the Lord's table. You're back to, oh, let's go back to the Feast of Weeks. And you're trying to keep these Old Testament feasts or dietary laws, but we have the fullness in Christ. Why go back to the shadows? We have the Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. Why again put a lamb and barbecue a lamb or bry a lamb on the fire and eat that? We have the lamb, Christ. Just read again Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So we want to worship God in spirit and in truth both in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament commandments and prescriptions. And that we can only do through Christ. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared, but, meaning, let's contrast it with, the, with verse 1 to 10, that's about Old Testament worship. We have New Testament worship in Christ. And if your worship is not in Christ, it's not by faith in Christ, then even your best worship it's like rotten food taken from a trash can, from the dustbin. Like the Apostle Paul said, all of this, all my circumcision, all my Jewish heritage, all my law keeping, it's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's dung. If I compare it to the knowledge of Jesus, I want the knowledge of Christ. So the first commandment then, for you and I this morning, is not, oh, worship God as He wants us to worship Him. Worship in spirit and truth according to the New Testament. No, the first commandment is repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Because you cannot worship in spirit and truth according to the New Testament if you are not in Christ. So who is He? Well, verse 11 says He's the high priest. He's our high priest. He's the high priest who brings to us all the advantages of the new covenant. And that's what he means by saying the good things that have come. So all these advantages we have, he has won it for us. He has bought it and purchased it for us. When he went into not an earthly tent made of, of animal skins and goat hair, or made of fine linen, colorful fine linen. No, but when he went into the real tent, into heaven itself. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, when Christ entered there. So that's what we're seeking. And what are these advantages that Jesus purchased for us? Well, it's eternal life, forgiveness of sins. It's a clean record. It's the new birth. It's, uh, it's Jesus' perfect righteousness put to our account. It's a pure heart. It's adoption, being accepted into God's family. It's the Holy Spirit who is given to us to help us to live a holy life. It's heaven. It's a new body we'll receive when Jesus returns. So are those privileges yours? Are those privileges yours? And if not, well then, you, then it means you've got the opposite. You've got eternal death. You're an enemy of God. You've got a sinful record. Satan, you're part of his family. You've got a filthy and impure heart. You have no hope, no hope whatsoever to live a life acceptable to God. You're on your way to hell. You will have a sickly, 
body when Jesus returns. A horrible, filthy body. So switch sides. Switch sides. While you have the opportunity, call out to God, call for mercy. There is with God plentiful redemption to save sinners. Number two, our salvation. So we're still talking about why New Testament Christianity is better. So we already spoke about our worship. Number two, our salvation. That's in verse 12. Now the word, the word salvation, or not salvation, really redemption in verse 12. The Greek word there speaks, it's the idea of a ransom. So you've been kidnapped in modern terms. And your parents need to pay a ransom of 50 million rand so that the kidnappers will let you go free. Or it's the idea more accurately in New Testament terms of a slave. And the slave, someone comes and purchases your freedom. They pay, they buy you, they purchase you and say you are free to go. You are no longer a slave. How does this happen? Well, in the Old Testament, the way it happened, this redemption was that the priest needed to bring a sacrifice. He needed to slaughter an animal, kill an animal, and by this way he could enter the tent. He could go into the tent and pray for God's people. Verse 12, he entered, it speaks of Jesus, once fall into the holy places. But now it says, not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Because that's how it worked in the Old Testament, the blood of goats and calves. Now in the New Testament, it continues, it says, but by means of his own blood. So Jesus goes into the true tent, into heaven, by means of his own blood. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. Now some translations say he went into the true tent, he went into heaven with his own blood. Meaning that Jesus literally took blood into heaven. That's the idea, but that's a wrong idea. Because the Greek word dia plus the genitive, what that means is that Jesus went by means, the ESV is a correct translation, by means of his own blood, or because of his own blood. In other words, Jesus can now appear in heaven before the Father on our behalf because he is the perfect sacrifice, by means of the blood that he shed on the cross on earth. He can now enter heaven on our behalf. And then this text also teaches us, if that's true, it also teaches that Jesus did not go to hell after he died. He went to heaven. He went to heaven. He entered, it says verse 12, by means of his own blood. He entered heaven. So yes, yes, when Jesus died, he did announce his victory to the spirits in prison, 1 Peter 3, verse 18 and 19, 2 Peter 2, verse 4 speaks of these, these spirits, these demons in prison. So he just announced his victory, but it's like on his way. As he, as he died, he gave up his spirit and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. On the way, he just said, by the way, I'm just announcing my victory that I have conquered death and hell and sin. I've conquered Satan and all his demons. And then he enters heaven. Verse 12 and verse 24 also, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. 
now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, the robber, the murderer, today you will be with me in paradise. That very day Christ went to paradise. And as I said earlier, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit when he died. That's what he said. So it's a false teaching. and It's a very serious error and a very serious false teaching to imply that the cross of Jesus is not sufficient. The cross of Jesus is not enough to save us. Jesus had to continue suffering in hell. That's what the Word of Faith movement teaches. They say the cross, Jesus didn't finish the work of redemption and salvation there. Where Jesus clearly finished it there, when John 19 verse 30 says, Jesus said, it is finished, it's done, it's completely paid. Jesus didn't need to suffer more in hell. He went to heaven. And then if Jesus went to heaven, it also means he went there as our forerunner. Chapter 6 verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf into the inner places, verse 19 says, meaning heaven. So it means the head has gone ahead, the head has gone into heaven, now the body will follow. He's the head, we're the body. And so that means, like Jesus, when Jesus died and he went to heaven, the same happens with believers. When we die, we go to heaven. Jesus said that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. And when, when Lazarus died in Luke 16, the angels carried him to paradise where Abraham was and then the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise and Jesus said I'm the resurrection and the life and then he continues and he goes on saying that even though we die yet we will live not just meaning the resurrection one day but meaning that yes our bodies die but we continue living with God Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of heaven and it speaks of the spirits of righteous men make, made perfect they're in heaven when Stephen died, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Why is die gain? Because when you die, you're with Christ. Paul says, I, I don't know what to choose. Should I stay here or should I depart and be with Christ? That's far better. There's no in-between. Either you're here or you're with Jesus Christ in heaven. Revelation 7 verse 9 speaks of heaven and you see this, this innumerable crowd of people from every tribe, language, people and nation. And that's before judgment day. So it's not after judgment, that's when Christians die. Revelation 14 verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. How can they be blessed if you don't go to heaven when you die? It's because you go to heaven. And again, that's before the final judgment. So to speak of soul sleep or psychosomnia, and some cults believe that. They believe when you die, your soul sleeps in the grave until Jesus comes. That's a cultic myth. That is not true. That is patently unbiblical. And then the, the text also goes on, our text, to say that Jesus didn't have to give himself continually. It wasn't a sacrifice again and again and again. He needs to be sacrificed like the Old Testament priests did with the goats and the bulls. They continually needed to bring these sacrifices. No, not so with Jesus. It's once for all, verse 12 says. Um, he entered once for all, once for all into the holy place. Verse 25 and 26. It wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as High priests, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, 
for then he would have to, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10, verse 10 speaks again, once for all. Verse 11, the priest's daily sacrifices. Verse 12, Christ offered a single sacrifice and he sat down. Verse 14, a single offering. So it's a single sacrifice. The, the price is paid. The price is paid. There's no more debt. There's no more debt to, that needs to be paid. Colossians 2 verse 14, it's paid. It's paid for. So, so don't even trust in your quiet time. Don't even trust in your involvement in the church. To say, I trust in this for God to accept me. Trust in Christ alone. Say with the old Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks, Farewell prayer. Farewell hearing the word. Farewell fasting. I will rest in you no more. Now I will rest only in the bosom of Christ and the love of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Now that doesn't mean stop praying, stop fasting, stop listening to sermons. What it means is stop trusting in those things to make you acceptable before God or for winning God's and earning God's favor. Rest in Christ alone. Rest in what Jesus did on the cross. And then you pray and then you fast and then you listen to sermons because you enjoy God. And then you also thank God for his eternal salvation. Verse 12 at the end, securing an eternal salvation. And because it's an eternal salvation, you cannot lose it. You cannot lose the salvation. And if you could, well, then God is a liar. Because chapter 6 verse 18 says God cannot lie. And Titus 1 verse 2 says God has promised eternal life. And it says God cannot lie. And yet it speaks of eternal redemption. And if you lose it, it's not eternal, and then God is a liar. And I won't dare to say that. Number three, our purification. So we looked at our worship, our redemption or salvation, and then our purification, verse 13 and 14. When I was a child at our junior youth, so that's primary school youth, the youth leader, this is the pastor's wife, she taught the kids and she said, I want you to come to youth next Friday, but you must be really dirty. So old clothes, tattered clothes, torn clothes, put ground on your legs and your arms and your face or mud or whatever. And we did that. And so the next Friday we got to youth and all these dirty kids and got mud on their arms and soil on their faces and dirty clothes. And then she said to us, all right, now before we start today's lesson, you better run. You better run and go and wash yourself. There's an outside tap. Wash your arms, wash your legs, wash your face because Jesus is coming in five minutes. And we ran. I really thought, what if Jesus is coming? We better get clean. <laughs> uh, so we literally washed ourselves but it was also symbolic when she taught the lesson of being cleansed of sin. We need to be pure and ready for the coming of Christ. And that's exactly the point we learn from the Old Testament. The Old Testament, once a year, the priest would bring a sacrifice. 
he would sacrifice first a bull for his own sin and then a goat for the sin of the people. And that we see in verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls, all right. And that comes from the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. But then also there was the purification of the body. So it's a literal purification of the body, literal cleansing of your body, but it also had symbolic value, like with my little illustration. Literal washing of the mud, but also symbolic to say this is the lesson, lesson the, the teacher, the lady wanted to teach us that day. So that we find further in verse 13, it speaks of the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's a, a, a baby cow, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So that comes from Numbers 19. Now what, what happened is they would slaughter a red heifer, as I said, a, a cow, a young cow, and a red one, so this reddish brown, they would slaughter it, and then the, the son of the high priest, Eleazar, Aaron's son, he would take the blood of that heifer, and then he would sprinkle it before the tent, before the tabernacle, seven times. And then they would burn this animal, this cow, this young cow. They would burn it to ashes, the whole cow, skin and everything. But they would burn it, they would use cedar wood. If you read Numbers 19, there would be red skin. Uh, or scarlet yarn, so it's red kind of thread or wool. And then also hyssop, they would burn with that. And then what would happen is they would take the, the they would take clean water, they would take all these ashes and they would filter clean water through it and then it makes lye, L-Y-E, that is used in soap. So lye, like in lye soap. And that's got a pH of 13. That is as strong as oven cleaner. <laughs> that is as strong as, as jick, as bleach. And it would obviously then kill any bacteria or viruses. And then with this animal that was burned, there's fat. And so the, the mixture of this animal fat with the lye, well, that would make that the, the lye doesn't burn your skin and they would make a soap from this and then the hyssop is an antiseptic and then the red wool pieces of thread still left well that would make it like industrial soap heavy duty soap lava soap so it really scrubs your skin and then the cedar wood that would cause a very mild irritation to the skin um, so the cedar wood, it's, it's burnt to ashes now, but then parts of it is still left in this, this lye mixture. And they create the soap. And so the very light irritation would cause you not to just wash your skin, but scrub your skin. So why, why did they have this soap? If someone touched a dead body, this is still Numbers 19. If someone touched a dead body, then they would sprinkle, the priest would take, or someone would take a, a hyssop branch, now a fresh hyssop branch, and they would, they would dip it in this liquid soap, this mixture, and then they would sprinkle it with fresh water. They would sprinkle it on this person on day three and day seven, on his clothes and on his skin, and then he would go and wash with clean water. He would wash this soap and scrub himself and wash his clothes and that would help that any viruses or any bacteria that had come from this dead body, 
And there are sicknesses. You can go and read websites. They say, yes, yeah, sicknesses don't spread from dead bodies. Well, they do. Uh, sicknesses like Ebola or hepatitis, hepatitis or uh, TB or gastro, any of those kinds of germs and viruses would be then killed by this person washing his clothes and washing his body. And so that was actually a very great kindness that God did by creating the soap so the people wouldn't spread sicknesses through the camp and under the rest or to the rest of the nation of Israel. So what's the point? What's the point in Hebrews chapter 9? The point is that these bulls and goats and this red heifer, that's just, it's just symbolic. And it's just for the cleansing of the body. But it cannot cleanse your conscience. It cannot remove your sin. Verse 9. It says it cannot cleanse the conscience of the worshipper. Perfect. Chapter 10 verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what we need is the blood of Jesus, not the blood of animals. Verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? So when it speaks of the blood of Christ, it doesn't merely refer to the red fluid in his veins. Otherwise, Jesus could just go and donate blood. No, this means the bloody cross, the blood-covered cross of Christ. Like the Old Testament sacrifices, they needed to bleed out, bleed to death. Jesus gave his blood, his life, he died. So the religion of the Bible, the religion of Scripture is a religion of blood. No forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Verse 22. And people say that is absolutely disgusting. That is gross. That's the point. Because that's exactly how God sees our sins. It is disgusting. And it deserves that kind of sacrifice. How did Jesus ever get it right to go to the end, to endure all of that without turning back? Verse 14 says, through the eternal spirit. The eternal spirit. The spirit filled him in the womb. The spirit filled him and came on him when he was baptized. The spirit helped him to say no to Satan and yes to obedience. Yes to his father. Yes to be, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The spirit helped him. The spirit helped him to be obedient all the way so that he could be the perfect lamb. The lamb without blemish. The lamb without sin. So he sacrificed and offered himself through the eternal spirit. Because if Jesus sinned, if Jesus had sinned, then he couldn't die for our sins because then he had to, he, he'd have to die for his own sins. So praise him. Praise him then not only for his death, but praise him for his perfect life. Yes, in his death he bore our sins, but in his life he provided the perfect record of obedience we need so that we can stand before God. Now some people are they people of little faith and they think God doesn't want to give. What if God doesn't want to give the salvation to me? God does want to give it. 
No one forced God to give us the salvation. No one forced Jesus to die. He wasn't like an Old Testament sacrifice that had no choice. The animal was just taken and slaughtered. Jesus had an option. Jesus had a choice. The Father had a choice. He chose to send His Son. Jesus chose to give His life. It wasn't taken. He gave it. Verse 14. He offered Himself. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said. I have the power to give it up. I have the power to take it up. Jesus gave his life. I have the power to lay down my life. So leave your unbelief. Let go of your unbelief. And receive him as your father, as your savior, as your king, as your friend. Yes, but... Someone says, yes, but, but what if in my case, what if in my case, God decides not to accept the sacrifice of Jesus for me? Your problem is you think too much of yourself. And you think too little. You think too little of Jesus and his Father. You think you're so unique. You're so special. God will accept everyone through the death of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. But you need something more than the cross. You think Jesus' sacrifice is not good enough to save you. You think God the Father is a liar. Oh yes, yes, he'll accept the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners, but later on he'll turn, he'll turn around and say, well, now I reject my son. I don't accept that sacrifice anymore. Verse 14 says, Jesus offered himself to God. God has accepted that. Don't come with nonsense saying, oh, but maybe he'll turn around and not accept it in my case. You need to repent of your sin. You need to ask for forgiveness because, because you, you have a really cheap view of the cross of Jesus Christ. And maybe there's another way in which you, you despise the cross, even though you don't maybe not mean to do it, but you do. And this is how. You feel guilty when you go to bed at night and you feel guilty when you get up in the morning because your sin is bothering you, your conscience isn't clear. So instead of doing verse 14 where it says the blood of Jesus speaks of the blood of Christ who will purify our conscience, instead of, instead of 1 John 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin, instead of 1 John 1 verse 9 that says you need to confess your sin and God will forgive you and cleanse you, instead of that, no, you go and you try and quiet or silence your conscience by drinking too much or by using drugs, going on a high or by drinking tablets and lots and lots of tablets or by going to sleep and just sleeping too much because... You want to escape your guilty conscience or, or by running away or by being a workaholic. Because if you just keep on work, working and focusing on something, then you'll forget about your sin and you, you'll run away in that sense. Or trying religion, doing religious stuff, thinking you can cleanse your conscience. If I just do more good than bad, then I won't feel guilty about my sin. Well, you're like someone, you've just unplugged the, the petrol light. So the petrol light goes orange saying you need fuel and then you go and unplug it or you remove the fuse. <coughs> Why don't just put petrol in the car and then the light will go off? Why not just repent of your sin and ask for forgiveness and your conscience will be clean? 
through the blood of Jesus. Verse 14, he purified our conscience. 10.22 gives us a pure conscience. So if you have a pure conscience then, and if you have a new heart, then you won't continue in a life of sin. Then you'll start living a life of good works, not dead works, where you do all these your own kinds of works, but they just lead to death. No, you'll serve the living God. Verse 14. He purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And now we no longer serve out of fear. We no longer sin because we feel forced to sin. Or um, at least we no longer do good works because we feel forced. And now we serve God. We're forced and we're afraid. No, you do it with joy, with delight, with gladness, with desire. All your praises and thanksgivings and prayers and going to church and reading the Bible and giving money to missionaries and giving money to the poor and using spiritual gifts and serving others and evangelizing. Your whole life is now a sacrifice to serve the living God. And you'll continue doing that in heaven. Yes, you'll continue serving God in heaven. Revelation 7 verse 15. They will serve him. Now, if you're an unbeliever, oh man, that sounds boring. That sounds unattractive, like being married to an eight-year-old. Ew, gross girls. <laughs> and that's how unbelievers view the service of God. But if you're a Christian, oh man, oh, being a Christian, what a delight. Something to look forward to, serving my master, serving my friend, my Lord, my God. Because that's part of New Testament Christianity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now asking that you would guide us and lead us as New Testament Christians to enjoy the full benefits of this service and worship. We praise you. Fill our hearts with delight and joy in you, in your Son, by the Spirit. Amen.